It sounds cliche to say someone has devoted a career to helping others, but my next guest has literally done that, specifically helping victims of terrorism and crime. Among her accomplishments is drafting the original policy for the International Terrorism Victim Expense Reimbursement Program out of the Justice Department. Today, she's Deputy Director of the Office on Trafficking in Persons, part of the Health and Human Services Department. And she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Carolyn Hightower joins me now. Ms. Hightower, good to have you on. Good to be with you, Tom. Thank you. And it sounds like you have had indeed an interesting career. Just give us the uh, 60-second outline of what you've done in 40 years of federal service. Wow, that's quite a challenge. Well, I came into federal service as a presidential management fellow. At that time, the program was a PMI program, Presidential Management Internship Program. I had the great opportunity to join the Department of Justice in a brand new office, the Office for Victims of Crime, which was established after the passage of the Victims of Crime Act of 1984. And I spent 23 years there basically working on developing programs and services for individuals who experience probably the worst incident of their lives, working with programs that assist victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, and those were the priority areas outlined in the Victims of Crime Act. But after the Oklahoma City bombing, Congress basically passed legislation to support the response to cases of terrorism. And as a result, our office had that responsibility added in addition to focusing on domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Sure. And we should just remind people that might be a little bit newer to the market that that Alfred P. Murrah building bombing in Oklahoma City was 1995 during the Clinton administration. And until 9-11, it was the biggest domestic terrorism occurrence ever, correct? Absolutely. And it was the first time the federal government had to basically amass a coordinated response to a mass terrorism case. Uh, There were 169 individuals that perished in that bombing, and it was a monumental effort to try to pull together all the resources. I think the greatest challenge was the fact that the bombing occurred in Oklahoma City, but the trial was actually held in Denver, Colorado. So it was coordination between two different jurisdictions and two different sets of nonprofit organizations, as well as government entities involving both the federal and the state government. And how did the work that you had done for victims of, for lack of a better word, ordinary crime, inform what you were then doing for the addition of this whole terrorism piece to it? I think the most important aspect of that was the fact that we had built a network of service providers across the United States, including in Oklahoma and in Colorado, that we were able to draw upon their support in implementing services and assistance for the surviving family members who wanted to attend the trial, and then also for the community who had been affected by the bombing. And by the way, you have been to the bombing site, which is now mostly a memorial because the building was not salvageable in Oklahoma City. And tell us about that. That was a really moving experience. I had not been there since the 1990s. And about two years ago, I was driving across country to take my daughter to college. And I wanted to stop there and I wanted her to see the site and to explain to her what happened. And it brought back a lot of 
bad memories as well as a lot of very good memories about the good people of Oklahoma and the people of Colorado who stepped up at a time when we really needed them and their support and needed them to trust the government and to work closely with the federal government to provide the support and assistance to the family members and to the survivors of the bombing. We're speaking with Carolyn Hightower. She's deputy director of the HHS Office on Trafficking in Persons and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. So tell us then how you got to the HHS post and what your work there involves. Sure. Well, I took a brief hiatus from the federal government and I lived abroad in Chile, Colombia and Mexico. And when I returned from living abroad, I was ready to return to federal service. And I happened to learn about this brand new office that the Department of Health and Human Services had established, the Office on Trafficking in Persons. Right before I left the Department of Justice in 2007, Shortly before then, I guess seven years before then, Congress had passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and my former office at the Office for Victims of Crime had assumed some responsibility for implementing programs and services for individuals who experienced trafficking. So I saw this new opportunity at HHS and reached out to them and was selected to serve as the deputy director here. And the nice thing about it was in both of my federal career cases, I joined brand new offices and it was a great experience because it was an opportunity to build an office from the ground and what was I think most beneficial to me in coming to HHS was the experience that I had had at the Department of Justice and the development of that program office and the services and assistance that we were able to put into place, as well as the policies that we were able to establish in terms of how we wanted to build a community of services for individuals who experienced victimization. And going back to those justice days, those 23 years, you had a lot of attorneys general come and go in that period of time. And justice is kind of an operative agency. They investigate, they prosecute, they go fight crime. Did you feel that you always had the support you needed for something that's maybe the softer end, for lack of a better word again, at justice, which is helping the victims that are kind of in the rearview mirror in many cases for what justice actually does? Well, you know, when the Victims of Crime Act was first passed and the Office for Victims of Crime was established, I think that there were lots of questions about why this office would be at the Department of Justice and why it was not a social services agency. But the focus was really on how we provide access to the justice system for individuals who had experienced a crime victimization. And so we were able to parlay that focus with the social services and basically garner support for our programs because prosecutors and law enforcement realized that if victims had the assistance that they needed, they were more willing to cooperate with law enforcement and participate in a criminal justice proceeding. And then it also relieved them of some of the, I guess some would call the social services side of responding to crime. All right. So you have spent a long time then helping victims of crime. What's your feeling about what people may not understand about someone who has been a victim of crime? 
it affects them more than just the physical harm they may have, do you feel, or or maybe just the monetary harm they might have experienced? Well, I, I think it's a combination of multiple things. There is the physical aspects of it, but there is also the psychological aspects of it and the financial aspects. And one of the things that I think that has evolved over time is a greater appreciation that all of those are necessary components of an effective response to victimization. There are state crime victim compensation programs in every state. When I first joined the Justice Department, there were only like 44, I believe, in place. But now every state has one. After the 9-11 bombing, you remember that Ken Feinberg, they set up the compensation fund for the surviving family members of that bombing. So I think that there is a greater appreciation for the opportunity for collaboration among various entities across the government. You asked me about support. I do want to say that throughout my career at the Justice Department, I found that the leadership of the agency was totally committed to an appropriate response to crime victimization and really took on you know, some of the naysayers and some of the individuals who were not so keen on the idea of like, why are we doing this kind of social services activity? Now, I think it's just seen as a part of the fabric of the organization. All right. Well, that's testimony, I think, in part to the work you've done. And I guess sounds like you would hope your daughter would follow you into public service. Well, interesting I, uh, enough, I have two daughters. Uh, one just graduated from James Madison University with a dual degree in international affairs and Spanish. But interestingly, she received a fellowship, a presidential fellowship, and it was all focused on human services. So now her focus is she wants to go to graduate school and get a public health degree. And I said, well, wait a minute. I thought you started off as in this international affairs. She said, but I think I really like this work a lot more. She was working with refugees and immigrants down in the Harrisonburg area and helping them with English language and also helping to support them in their educational pursuits. So, yeah, I think I, I have at least one that's heading in that direction. My other daughter is a rising senior at Stanford, and she's studying biology and archaeology. I'm not quite sure what she plans to do with that degree right now. She's working for the National Park Service in Yellowstone National Park doing archaeology work and spent six weeks in Bosnia doing archaeology work uh, in a medieval cemetery. So, yeah, I think that I may have had an impact on them as well. Sounds like you're very proud of both of them. Justifiably. Carolyn Hightower is Deputy Director of the HHS Office of Trafficking in Persons and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure for me to join you. And I just want to say that, you know, public service is a high calling and nothing gets done in the government, in any government without a team. And while I'm being recognized, there are so many people who also contributed to this response. And I feel a little bit uncomfortable being the the center of, of this attention because 
I didn't do anything alone. It was the work of not only my colleagues within the federal government and the leadership of the federal government, but also with the private nonprofit organizations in the community and the state and locals. And I, I think that it's important to recognize that civil servants come in every day and they do exactly what I do. I just happen to be being recognized, but there are so many other people who are worthy of recognition. And so thank you for this opportunity to just speak on their behalf because they are the backbone of how we get things done uh, across the, the government. And so noted. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. 
It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it 
it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.